and welcome to today's Environmental Humanities Book Chat. Um, we are excited to have uh, Kate Rigby, who's Professor of Environmental Humanities at Bath Spa uh, University in the UK, here today to talk about her book. She moved over to Bath Spa in 2016 as the founding director of their Research Center for Environmental Humanities. And she herself works in eco-criticism and philosophy and you know, broadly across uh, environmental humanities. So we were really excited to have her um, come and speak to us today about her brand new um, book. And that is titled Reclaiming Romanticism. Yes, that is it. <laughs> it is indeed. Thank you so much. Well, it's really nice to have this opportunity to um, to, to talk about the book a bit. Um, it is indeed called Reclaiming Romanticism. The subtitle is Towards an Eco-Poetics of Decolonization. Uh, the title went through a whole host of variations before I ended up with this, you know, as is often the case. The book had actually been brewing for many years. Um, and it took me back to the territory of an earlier monograph, actually from 2004, on German and British poetics and philosophies of nature and place, topographies of the sacred. But now I'm returning to Romanticism within uh, a new context, and it's a new context in three main ways. Firstly, since 2004, sadly, worsening ecological crisis, as we all know. Secondly, the imperative and challenge of decolonization, but also the U-turn that has taken place about um, a decade or so ago um, in the historical and literary critical evaluation of Romanticism. Uh, from viewing it as a sort of positive road not taken uh, in the early kind of phase of eco-criticism to a dead end that's contributed to our contemporary woes. And in, in Topographies of the Sacred, I actually sort of tried to say, well, it's kind of both of those things. And I think that many of these critiques were valid and important, but they've led to a kind of a historical and reductive blanket condemnation of Romanticism um, and, you know, the use of romantic as a dirty word. So, um, so this book actually joins a number of other recent publications by eco-critical scholars of Romanticism who are pushing back against um, what we see as a widespread mischaracterization of the legacy of European Romanticism. Um, and um, especially in its first heyday in Britain and the German region around 200, uh, around 1800, I should say 200. Where did that come from? <laughs> 1800. So in re reclaiming Romanticism, as I boldly put it in my title, I have some anxieties about this, but this is my this is what I decided to do. So what I'm endeavouring to do is locate particular points of departure for an eco-poetics of decolonization within um, European Romanticism around 1800, which I bring into conversation with the poetry and praxis of contemporary uh, North American and Australian writers and activists. Um, and at some point, I realized that this endeavor of creative reinheritance of a past cultural legacy is itself a thoroughly romantic project. So my introduction actually opens with a quote from the writer, polymath and inspector of minds, Friedrich von Hardenberg, who's better known as Novalis. And this is what Novalis says of um, sort of contemporary kind of recovery of classical, of a classical inheritance. Um, back um, in, the, in the 1790s. So Navala says, only now is antiquity arising. The remains of ancient times are but the specific stimuli for the formation of antiquity. It is the same in the case of classical literature as it is with antiquity. It is not actually given to us. It is not at hand. Rather, it is yet to be engendered by us. Only through assiduous and inspired study of the ancients might a classical literature arise before us, one that the ancients themselves did not have. So um, Novalis's insistence on the need for both assiduous attention and inspired interpretation in our reception of early literatures highlights that cultural legacies are always 
co-constructed after the event. And this is definitely true of Romanticism, which never constituted anything like a coherent body of works and ideas. Um, I've always stressed all my writing about Romanticism that it's highly heterogeneous with divergent tendencies and trajectories. So this book is not about Romanticism as a whole, because I actually don't think that such a thing exists, but it's about specific threads that I seek to draw out in the interests of elaborating an eco-poetics of decolonization, informed by contemporary art and activism, and in the face of worsening ecological crisis. So each of the first four chapters explores what I call an eco-poetic art of resistance to the dualistic logic of colonization, as it emerges from a specific work or a few works of romantic poetry. So just brief overview of this. In Wordsworth's um, programmatic pair of poems from the lyrical ballads, Expostulation and Reply and The Tables Turned, I identify a contemplative eco-poetics, which is the art of paying attention to things in a non-objectifying and non-instrumental manner, allowing for surprise and wonder, the unforeseeable and unbiddable. In Keats's Ode to Autumn in the second chapter, I find an effective, affective eco-poetics that is the art of becoming aware of the ways in which as a bodily being, your mood and state of mind are inflected by your physical environs, by the atmospheres produced by weather, time of day and seasonal change, for example. And then in the third chapter in John Clare's poems on wild bees, I discern a creaturely eco-poetics the art of kin making with non-human others, recognizing one's similarity to an entanglement with them. And then in the fourth, across several works by Blake, I discern a prophetic eco-poetics, prophetic not in the sense of foretelling the future, but in the ancient Hebraic sense of speaking truth to power. That is critiquing the injustices of the present as tending towards future catastrophe and calling for radical socio-ecological transformation. And in each case, these earlier works are brought into conversation with modern and contemporary works from North America and Australia. And also I consider how those um, eco-poetic arts might be translated into eco-political praxis. Um, and so I look at eco-poetics beyond the page um, with, with each of those as well. Um, so why North American Australia um, actually is particularly Australia looms large, I have to admit. Um, it's what I'm kind of most passionate about um, as an Australian myself, I guess. So my interest is not only to consider ways of inheriting or responding to romanticism across a temporal distance, but also a geographical and social distance including highlighting how differently the romantic legacy got taken up in North America from in Australia. Um, and of course, it's in, it's in these settler colonial cultures um, that an eco-poetics of colonization takes on a particular, particularly urgent character. So the writers discussed in these chapters include the Canadian Tim Lilburn, African-American poets Audre Lorde and Natasha Truthewey, um, Australian poets Kevin Hart, Judith Wright and Geordie Alberston. So up until this point through those four chapters, I've been arguing that Romanticism harbours decolonial potentials. But in the final chapter, I also consider how Romantic eco-poetics also needs to be decolonised in turn. And the focus here is, if you like, the afterlife of Romanticism or the aftermaths of Romanticism in Australia. And what I argue is that the problematic aspect of romanticism in the Australian context lies not so much in the kind of wilderness fetishism that developed in North America, but rather in nostalgia for a Eurocentric version of the rural pertaining to the poetic genres of pastoral and Georgic. It was this pastoral imaginary rather than any hankering after pristine wilderness which I believe has proven particularly damaging to Australian ecologies and Indigenous cultures. So here in this final chapter, I consider the work of a younger contemporary of Judith Wright, David Campbell, very interesting poet, far less well known than her, who was an inheritor both of European pastoral literature 
and of the colonial pastoral takeover of Indigenous land, his forebears, like Wrights, were pioneering pastoralists in the region of Gundagai, about which more and on. Um, so in the 1970s, Campbell began to grapple with the devastating impact of the violence of colonisation, of which he knew he was a beneficiary. But his representation of Aboriginal people and culture, as traced in the rock art with which he became fascinated, never got much beyond regret for the disappearing native. There's no hint of Indigenous resistance, survival or contemporary voices here. So I turn in conclusion to two contemporary poets, the Anglo-Celtic Australian Anne Elvey and Wiradjuri poet um, Janine Lean. Uh, Janine's um, collection of poetry um, um, that I discuss is called um, Walk Back Over and it's about really um, re reconsidering, re-reading, uh, re-narrating um, the history um, of colonial Australia. Um, particularly, specifically from um, an Indigenous perspective. So in bringing these two poets into conversation, and in fact, they are in conversation um, beyond the page as well. In fact, two, two, two of their books were kind of launched at the same event. Um, but in so doing, I discern the, liniment, the lineaments of a decolonial renegotiation of the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and a vision of how they might walk, walk back over their fraught histories. So, um, uh, and in particular, how they might work together in pursuit of justice and reconciliation and renewed care for country um, amidst the ramifying damage of what I term the Plautocene. So I have to issue an, an apology here. We, we surely have too many scenes already but I'm adding a new one, um, kind of playfully. I don't know if it'll take off, but um, I've called it the Plautocene, um, which is the era in which the realm of the dead governed in Greek mythology by Plauton in the form of the fossilized remains of ancient forests and sea creatures has invaded the life world of Gaia's critical zone in the form of climate weirding greenhouse gases and all their calamitous consequences. I was originally going to have Anthropocene in the title of the book and the publisher was very keen on that because it's such a searchable word, isn't it? It's going to pop, all over, pop up all over the places. But I just thought, no, you know, there are just so many problems with it. I do use it from time to time, but I use alternative words as well. And, and um, so I had to go at coming up with my own. And what I would really like to do actually is to give Janine Lean the last word, if I might. I would really love to, um, to end by reading uh, one of the, the three poems that I discuss in the book. Um, and um, delightfully, it's actually just been republished in this fabulous collection, um, if you can see that here, which Lean herself um, has um, edited. Um, and it's a really um, significant uh, collection of First Nations poems by contemporary Aboriginal authors, including a lot of po poems which include, um, um, you know, Indigenous language. Um, it's just, it's such an important collection. And so she, she reprints um, one of these poems in here. So the book is called Guayu for All Times. Um, and just before I read that poem, I just have to explain two key things. So as I said, um, Campbell grew up on this great big, um, you know, pastoral estate um, near this small town of Gundagai. And as it happens, Janine Lean also grew up on a rather more humble sheep farm <laughs> near Gundagai. Um, so they're, they're um, kind of the back of their poetry is a sort of similar inheritance of, uh, of bush ballads and, um, and, and tales about this area, and particularly the town of Gundagai, uh, which is a Wiradjuri uh, name, beautiful Wiradjuri name. Um, it was, um, it's probably the most celebrated um, in kind of colonial, sort of nostalgic, settler colonial nostalgic kind of bush ballads and songs. And in this and, and other poems, um, 
Lynn alludes to one of these. It's it's called Along the Road to Gundagai. If you're interested, you can Google it, Google it and find some country and Western singer singing it, Along the Road to Gundagai. Um, so she alludes to that. So this first thing that's really important to know, that she's kind of writing against this kind of sepulchral colonial kind of nostalgia for a particular kind of rurality. But secondly here, she refers to her country with a capital C, and that probably needs a little bit of explanation for some people. So it's an Aboriginal English word for a concept that's found um, amongst all of Australia's hundreds of First Nations languages. Um, and it refers to something that doesn't sort of translate easily into European languages. Um, but as I understand it, um, it refers to um, it refers to place, it refers to sort of ancestral lands and, and waters, and it's a person in itself. Um, and but it is also co-constituted in and through the interrelationships of different persons that belong to country, some of whom are, hu are human. And indeed, um, human custodians have a particular responsibility for the collective flourishing of country. There's actually a wonderful collective of, of, um, of writers, researchers who publish under the, under the name of Bowaka Country. Um, again, if you're interested in this, look up Bowaka Country. Um, it's such an interesting initiative and they, they credit country as a co-author of their publications. So now over to um, Janine Lean, and the, the, the poem is called Bridge Over the River Memory. Prince Alfred Bridge, Gundagai. When I come back, I remember it has been a long time, long time passing since I came back along this track to Gundagai, town of my childhood. There are many ghosts, I hear their voices. I stand on a solid red gum bridge, the longest wooden bridge in the world. The Irish nuns told me this on a good day under the Gothic arches in the convent on the hill where I learnt about Australian history. This continent, Australia, is a young country, they told us. The history of this place is very short, shortest in the world. They'd seen the world, the nuns. Maps were pinned on the wall to show how far they'd traveled to spread the word. I'd only seen my country, the longest bridge in the shortest history. That's what I learned. Prince Alfred Bridge, they called it, built last century by the pioneers as they opened up the lands for progress. Our teachers said so. How many river gums were felled? What were their names before they were rearranged across the river once their life blood? What was their history? My grandmother said this place is old. She said my teachers don't know the stories. I listened. On a bad day, you could be beaten for asking the wrong questions about the short history and the long bridge. At school, I learned to hold my tongue. The water under the bridge ripples over my memory now. The bend of the Murrumbidgee, a deep archive, flows steady and slow. I walk on the bridge and I remember how long it used to take to cross on my little legs, clinging tight to the side rail as huge wheat and wool trucks thundered over the ancient planks laden with the wealth of the nation. Sometimes the river rose so high it swallowed the bridge and the town. Short history almost washed away by higher, older tides. No trucks now. The bridge long ago closed. Steel and concrete girders bypass the town. The wealth of the nation rumbles down different roads. On the other side, I look back across the floodplains. The old stone convent on the hill is empty. I come back after seeing the world. I hear my grandmother again. The bridge is short now, but this history of place is still deep and long. Thank you, Janine. And thank you, Kate, that was fabulous. Um, and yeah, I think this really shows also then how romanticism as one of these big isms is 
is something that's always rooted in some particular groups, particular understanding of particular pasts connected to particular places. So there's this reclaiming that you talk about, uh, which I, I think is good to use these big words. Uh, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, really connects with that. So, so do you see then that there are other, um, I mean, I'm trying to get what's at stake then in these these reclaimings. Are there other actors, other groups trying to reclaim these ideas of, of the romantic past? Right. Well, there certainly are. I mean, um, as I said, you know, romanticism has um, diverse trajectories um, and one of them is right wing. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there is a kind of... Um, uh, um, yeah, kind of a, a nationalistic um, and, uh, you know, even fascistic sort of um, appropriation of, of romantic themes. Um, so clearly this is pitched uh, against that direction. Um, and um, yeah, um, so it's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to um, definitely, yeah, sort of, you know, reclaim these kind of positive aspects for a kind of decolonial project. I'm kind of trying to reclaim romanticism also from these reductive critiques, particularly, um, I think in, in North America, um, the idea has got about that, that, um, that romanticism is about kind of wilderness aesthetics. Um, and this is true in North America, but, but this is really a development that postdates, um, you know, European romanticism around um, 1800, which is very much more about, um, uh, about rural and indeed even urban places. And it's about, um, it's concerned with um, forms of, of human and non-human coexistence in peopled places. Um, and uh, about the possibility of, of possibilities for collective flourishing um, and, um, and becoming change and, and, and sort of, um, you know, an, a kind of unfolding of relationship um, rather than, you know, certainly the idea of wilderness as a kind of place that you, you close off and it's pristine in the sense of unpeopled. Um, that's very, very foreign to, um, to, to, uh, British and, and, and German romanticism around 1800. Um, so, um, yes, um, I, I, I quite like to say actually something about the cover of the book, um, which, um, which I'm, I'm very pleased about, where well, you can see it um, also on the, on, the, on the website there. Um, it was, it's, it, the photo was actually taken by um, my uh, friend, eco-philosopher Freya Matthews, and um, it's of the Merry Creek in Melbourne, um, in a sort of um, an inner uh, an inner city suburb, uh, Brunswick. Um, and um, uh, for me, it was really really important to uh, to emphasise, and I discussed this a number of places. I also did it in Topographies of the Sacred too, um, that the kind of recovery of of, of possibilities of of coexistence and of collective flourishing. Um, can happen in, in the city and indeed need to happen in the city. Um, and so this photo was also taken um, at um, a, um, um, an environment park called Ceres, um, which is really quite an important sort of site um, in, in, in Melbourne um, for kind of exploring um, forms of, of um, sustainability and, and um, sort of eco-social, um, uh, sort of betterment um, right in the right in the middle of the city. Um, so yeah, so all of those things are kind of <laughs> um, uh, in the shadows of, of that title. Yeah. So just remind people that write a comment in the chat if you you have questions. Then. So. Yeah. So I had a question, um, Kate. Thinking about. Um, you know, I, th I think it's really interesting how you've put into dialogue these older poets, the things we call romantics, with these new poets, um, you know. Uh, and so I was wondering, do you consider those new poets to be romantics then, <laughs> in, in this sense? Or are they, are they something else? You know, should we be, I guess one might ask, shifting the canon 
to, to say, oh, this is this is in fact the poetry you should you should be reading that you should be looking at. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't um, uh, say that they were romantic. I wouldn't say that. Um, um, but um, so I'm looking at kind of resonances, points of points of contact, and I'm certainly not tracing uh, sort of direct influence. But they, they, I guess they kind of vary um, in their in their um, the, the relationship that they that they kind of um, explicitly or, or implicitly might take towards a kind of romantic heritage. Um, Tim Tim Lilburn is very consciously um, engaged with romanticism, um, and um, Although um, he he's been known to um, differentiate his 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 uh, poetics from that of Wordsworth, I I do bring them together, um, and um, he's also written very interestingly on um, the the recovery of um, a, a particular tradition of um, um, Christian mysticism um, as a uh, a vehicle for decolonization from the perspective of the colonizer um, in, in his work. So, um, yeah, so I definitely wouldn't want to sort of say that they were romantic, but I, but, 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 um, but that I'm interested in those kind of points of contact. Good. Then we have a question from Eric. Uh, so you can ask it yourself. Yes. Hello, Eric. Nice to see you again. Hi, Kate. Nice to see Hi. you. Hi. Um, yeah, I don't know if you could see my comment. My basic question it has to do with sort of um, periodizing uh, uh, in, in doing kind of literary history, which is, um, so I have a couple observations about that, and then thinking about other ways of kind of organizing literary archives and how that's affected by um, environment, environmental humanities research. I'm trying to do that, balancing it with teaching constraints. So here's sort of, my, I guess, I guess, I, I think, I don't know if you remember, sort of my background is, um, you know, what used to be called postmodernism, you know, it's just anything from 68 to the present or 1945. But my, my sort of sense in it when I teach upper level students is it's sort of an umbrella term that's become completely useless and it just covers too much material and it's disparate. And then when you go back, I see the same kind of reclaiming thing going on in, in modernism and so on. So sort of like my, there's a general observation I have, which is just that a lot of times when you cluster uh, groups of writers around for kind of their aesthetic interests and sometimes subject matter, it really doesn't cohere with um, things going on in, in, the, in the historical past. And like, I don't also American Lit is my specialty and like the Norton Anthology of American Lit when you look at it is actually organized rather than sort of like, um, like the British one is Victorian and they've got romantic. And so some of it's, you know, who, who the Royals are and something, you know, but in American, it's all wars, <laughs> which I guess is a, it's a useful one. Is that sort of like how it's, how the history is broken up, which is suitable. Um, but so that's sort of my observation is this discomfort and my, I kind of come to the conclusion that this kind of periodizing is done largely just so that you can have syllabi that sort of makes sense to, to under the first and second year students who a lot of times are really lacking just a sense of history. So this opens up into my a larger question I have about doing literary studies in relation to environmental humanities is like, how do we come up with um, what I've already want to call it alternative archives um, that without sort of losing the traditional sense of history and then in order to give them this larger, uh, you know, the kind of history that you do get when you're, you know, doing things where you're trying to periodize uh, the history of the earth with, uh, so it makes sense in the, with people in the life sciences and you know, like that. Big question, I know, but any thoughts are welcome. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that is a big question. Um, and I, I don't have a big answer to it. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I, I think that, um, one of the, one of the, ways in which the periodicity of romanticism, at least in that early phase, if we say we might call it first wave romanticism in, in, in Britain and, and Germany, um, does, it does correlate with and is very much informed by um, wider 
um, you know, historical phenomena. I mean, obviously, it's it's profoundly um, influenced by um, the, the 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 revolutions, um, um, uh, American and French revolutions, uh, in particular, um, and also by kind of the ramping up of industrialization, and obviously in 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 Britain, fossil fueled um, industrialization. Um, and also um, a kind of new, a new kind of phase of imperialism, um, particularly, in fact, um, in the South Pacific, uh, and including Australia. Um, and um, so the kind of the, the, the literary and um, art and philosophical and music, I mean, that whole kind of out burst um, of, 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 of new forms of, um, of, of creativity, um, the creative work that occurs around 1800 is kind of in, entwined with those, with those historical um, things. And I mean, hence my, also my, my, um, um, my coinage of plauticine, because um, in a sense, I'm privileging that, um, that first, um, positing of, of the Anthropocene as beginning with, with fossil fueled um, industrialization. And although I know that now the geologists are saying, oh, well, it's not really until the great acceleration, you know, of the of the 1950s that we can see those those historical changes. Um, it does seem to me that that um, fossil fueled industrialization was just a profound, a profound moment and without which none of that other stuff would have happened. Um, and it is the moment of romanticism. So, you know, romanticism is the literature of the Plautocene, as I call it. So anyway, that's 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 not a big question. I mean, that's not a big that's not a big answer. That is a kind of a local, a local answer. Um, but I'm um, if I might just add that um, in my teaching um, of, of of literature, um, precisely because of what you say about sort of um, deficits in historical knowledge. I do, I do think that the literature classroom does provide great opportunities for teaching students about, about, uh, about wider historical things. And uh, um, um, yeah, I'm, I guess my, my uh, approach to, to literary studies has always been quite historical. Um, and um, I do think it's valuable. Good. So we have some questions uh, in the chat. So the first one from Marion. Uh, so which in a way follows up Dolly's question then. Uh, so she wanted to know more about the method of putting the historic romantics in dialogue with the contemporary poets. Uh, and if you could perhaps say something about what your insights and perhaps conclusions have been also. Um, hi, Marion. It's lovely to see you. <laughs> I'm filling in time here because I'm um, I'm not sure that I have a kind of sing, single answer to that, um, um, except to say, and I should say that 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 my um, my selection of contemporary um, poets um, was um, was not methodical in any way. Um, uh, I, you know, it's it's kind of driven by my own hermeneutic perspective rather than any kind of wider study, you know, from which I've then selected them as, 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 um, you know, as exemplary. Um, so in a sense, there's, there isn't, you know, I, I can't really comment on um, general trends because it, that's not the kind of study that it is. Um, but I, I guess it was a kind of experiment really to say, well, what would that um, sort of, um, uh, kind of eco-poetics, what might that look like in contemporary work? And what, what might it look like in eco-political praxis? Um, and um, so, um, and I do think that, I, I guess, I suppose there is one kind of um, overarching argument there, um, you know, which is that, that the romantics really did um, invent modern poetry and also a, a poetry that was self-consciously modern. I mean, hence that Novalis quote, you know, at the beginning, there's a sort of profound awareness um, of being engaged in a kind of avant-garde project. Um, and that, um, that, that they um, sort of, 
you know, opened up certain ways of writing that that's still, um, you know, in the wake of, of modernism and postmodernism, still have a place in contemporary poetry. So I, I would say that. And um, it, um, I suppose in a longer study, um, I would be, um, it would be really interesting to, to look at the way that, you know, a poet like um, Janine Lean, you know, takes um, takes a, a, a kind of, um, um an inheritance of, of of you know English romantic poetry and in a sense writes from within and against you know certain aspects of it um so um yes I, I mean I think in specifics you'd have to look case by case but the big the big argument is that you know that this was an incredibly generative transformative moment and um and 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 um, and and poets are still kind of um, feeding feeding from it in a sense, um, and you know taking it in new directions. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, I, I I I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but um, uh, modernism, of course, cuts its figure against romanticism, and so the the critics who like who like modernist poetry uh, are always down on romanticism. Uh, but there's an, there is, I think, a sense in which um, um, they are also um, continuing a kind of romantic avant-garde project, um, and um, you know, new writers, new critics always like to kind of <laughs> differentiate themselves from what's gone before. Um, but I, I, I think, as critics, it's important not to um, get um sort of caught up in the um in the in the kind of you know reductivisms of an earlier kind of poetics that are that, that that later poets might engage in as in modernist vis-a-vis -vis romantics good we have another question from from Mehdi who's wondering if you also think with affect or opacity to argue for the potentials of romantic poetry particularly where eco-critical structures fall short of responding to ethical dilemmas. Sorry, could you just repeat the first part of that? I didn't quite get that. Yeah, uh, if you also think with affects or opacity to argue for the potentials of uh, romantic uh, poesy. So thinking about affect, uh, yeah. how, do you, how do you end up mobilizing it and using it then in, in your book and how do you think it, it is useful uh, for people writing Poetry, reading poetry. Um, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, that's very good. So the first thing to say is that um, uh, I see the um, the 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 revaluation of affect uh, in the Romantic period actually begins a little bit earlier um, in the um, in the eighteenth century. Um, um, I see this as um, uh, having its own ethical charge. Because it's um, it's about, in a sense, decolonizing the body um, by by pushing back against kind of raciocentric constructions of human subjectivity, um, and um, acknowledging that you know we are bodily beings and um, we are um, um, ecological. Um, selves um, through our participation in the physical world, through our bodies. Um, and um, I begin by talking about um, the, the, the way that for in the late 18th century and for romantics like Keats, um, there was a real politics of affect, that, that revaluing affect, they thought that they, they felt that, um, that, um, that transformative emancipatory change uh, needed to um, encompass the dimension of affect and imagination. So there is a so there's there is a kind of ethical-political dimension already to affect. Um, however, um, I would always also say, and I do say sort of throughout the book, um, that um, that affective experience um, and indeed. Um, the um, the enjoyment of poetry um, and the affects afforded by reading poetry about effective experience um, are not going to um, you know um, stop climate change or anything like that um, and that so in a sense 
the 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 ethics of affect isn't like a, a prolegomena to politics, but the politics has to take place kind of beyond the page. And I, I actually so that's why I also talk about the fact that these that these um, eco poetic arts have to be actually then translated into forms of praxis. Um, uh, and in fact, in that chapter, I end up talking about um, series, the environment park on the Mary uh, uh, in Melbourne um, that, that, that is on the front cover. Um, and um, the, the, the creation of, of spaces of, of, of living environments that are conducive to, to well-being. Um, and to collective flourishing is something that you have to do um, kind of um, beyond the, the, the narrowly literary sphere. Um, I also have a, a sort of an afterword actually where I talk about um, the, um, the uh, I suppose, well, performance poetry um, and um, the, the way that, that poetry is now appearing more frequently in political contexts. Um, and um, so, you know, that's another kind of version of, of, um, of uh, eco-poetics beyond the page. Um, uh, the sort of, um, uh, the use of a kind of a, a poetic voice to kind of intervene in, in uh, political um, decision-making, um, uh, I think is really, really interesting um, and important. Okay, so we had another question in the comments then about um, if you could, uh, Axel was wondering if you could expand on the Plotisine concept. Okay, you, yeah. You can't resist the new concept. Okay, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I might just read you a little bit if that's okay. Uh, let's see if I can find the relevant bit. Um, okay, so um, it's was inspired by an early romantic poem, in fact, um, uh, by, um, uh, oh, I've suddenly forgotten her name. Uh, oh yeah, um, Anna Seward, Anna Seward, um, who wrote a poem called Colebrook Dale. Um, and it's a poem that, um, that um, protests against the environmental uh, impact of the world's first coal-powered iron foundry, first in the world. So Colbrook Dale's particular place, it's now a heritage site for industrial um, heritage. Um, and um, she writes um, um, about um, uh, the uh, water pollution, air pollution, noise pollution, light pollution um, um, of, of, the, um, of, the, of this um, iron foundry. Um, and um, she, um, she refers to, she says, uh, the genius of the place has been by Plutus bribed, um, such that this once beautiful valley on the verdant surface of the earth had fallen under the sway of Erebus, the Greek god of deep darkness, um, associated with the passage into Hades. So Plutus is the Romanized form of Plautus, the god of wealth, traditionally associated with agricultural bounty. But in Colebrookdale, the wealth generated in the iron foundry was not agricultural, but dependent upon the exploitation of the mineral riches extracted from Earth's dark depths. This kind of wealth was associated in Greek literature with another deity, Ploton, who also ruled the realm of the dead. Um, and in the case of the extraction of fossil fuels, it is the dead who are themselves uh, being exhumed and exploited. So in this way, we might say that with fossil fueled industrialization, along with its byproducts, including plastics, the realm of the dead has invaded the life world of Gaia's critical zone. Um, and this, colonization of the critical zone is propelling, of course, the processes of ecological unraveling that are tipping the dance of life death towards the terminus of double death. Um, and so I suggest a, a fitting um, alternative to Anthropocene might be Plautocene, uh, with a sort of double reference to, to uh, Plauton and uh, Plautos, right? <laughs> um, understood as the era in which the inequitably distributed wealth pursued by plautocrats, 
beginning with those who ensure the ascendancy of, um, of um, steam over water power in the late 18th century is garnered at an increasingly unbearable cost to and unimaginably long-term consequences for the wider collective, human as well as non-human, of the living earth. So the Plautocene, you know, begins with 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 uh, with fossil fuel industrialization, and it continues today. Um, and um, it's um, you know being driven, if you like, by um, the um, the the interests, and particularly being sustained now by the interests of the of of uh, a plutocracy, <laughs> if you like. So yeah, as I say, it's kind of playful, but um, and I, I should also acknowledge a debt to uh, to my husband Robert Hartley because um, it was actually Robert who. Uh, many, many, many years ago talked about um, uh, sort of the extraction of fossil fuels and their combustion as, as kind of um, uh, presiding over the invasion of the realm of the dead into the life world and generating um, sort of generating death um, in the living world. So that's the plot of scene. Good. So if people have more comments now, write in the chat because we're getting close to the end. But Dolly had a question. Yes. Um, so one of the things I was really struck with um, was the discussion of country. Um, I've, I've really gotten a lot out of and been thinking a lot about country as mm -hmm. an idea um, and as a relationship. And yeah. so what I was wondering is how you would contrast that versus so the wilderness idea where people reflect upon the romantic poets and say, oh, they're talking about wilderness. And you've said, well, not really. So what I'm wondering is, would they recognize ideas of country in their own poetry or would they say that they were more cited on wilderness? I guess, where do they, if we think of those as two spectrums, if you will, where, where do these romantics sit? So I would say um, that um, that Wordsworth, Blake, um, Keats, um, and especially John Clare um, would resonate much more with the concept of country. Um, and um, I mean, for, for Blake, um, you know, if, if, Famously, you know, um, where man is not, you know, nature is um, nothing or whatever. You know, the the idea of an unpeopled place is anathema <laughs> for Blake, and um, you know, it's not the same because because these these um, these writers um, belonged to a world that was had been, um, you know, an, an agrarian and agricultural civilization that was becoming an industrial civilization. So. Um, you know their their um, sort of socio-ecological world is very different from um, an indigenous Australian world um, uh, in certain respects. But um, somebody like uh, Claire, uh, for example, who was a rural a rural labourer um, and um, who had such a sort of intense sense of belonging to a kind of what we would say today a multi-species collective but you know to 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 a kind of a, um, a life world that was composed of of different living beings that were kind of interrelated um this was so strong that he was completely traumatized by moving to another another village and he said even the wildflowers do not know me he had the sense that when he went walking in his home kind of territory, that the plants recognized him, that he was known to them, that they that they were co-inhabitants of the place. And this is also why he was so upset about the privatization of the commons, um, which was kind of driving, um, you know, driving uh, people and 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 also, you know, their cows and their pigs and and, and so on, kind of off, off, off off of something like country. Um, um, so, um, so yeah, so I think this is that there is much more of a, an opportunity for conversation there. And in fact, one of the one of my objectives, I say really right at the end, perhaps I should have said it at the beginning, is that one of the reasons as a sort of Anglo-Celtic Australian myself, um, I want to not just um, be in the position of um, 
coming into conversation with um, with First Nations Australians um, and saying, "Well, I want what you've got." <laughs> um, you know, I you know, I, I I'm sorry. This has to be said. You know, um, my my mob, uh, you know, have done terrible things, and there are continuing injustice that needs to be said. But in addition, wouldn't it be more creative, more productive to be able to say, look, I've been actually having a little bit of a look back, you know, in my own kind of cultural heritage. And I think I think there are some things that might might open up a bit of common ground that we can that we can talk about. So we can bring so we can bring these into conversation and not and not um, as one um, cultural theorist says, you know, we don't want to just come empty handed to the negotiating table, so to speak, you know, what, what, what can we bring rather than just wanting to sort of take? So this, this is what I'm after. This is what I'm after, something that I can bring to the table. Um, Axel just said um, that, that Shelley, um, Shelley also very interesting. I talk about Shelley in the, um, the chapter on prophetic eco-poetics, um, definitely also um, one could do a lot more with Shelley than I do. Um, and also Shelley, you know, when he goes and he was poem on Mont Blanc. So there you have a view of a wilderness, which is horrified. He's horrified by it, you know, in a certain sense, you know, um, um, this is not, you know, a nice place to go where you can have your spiritual high. <laughs> this is a place where the glaciers are expanding and wrecking villages and, you know, destroying forests and <laughs> so on. Thanks. All right, thank you, Dan. Thank you very much, Kate. Uh, it was great to talk with you about uh, your book, Reclaiming Romanticism, um, which is out with Bloomsbury um, now. So um, I know everyone will want to get a copy and take a look at that. So thank you.